The first five books of the Bible are called the Book of the Law, but in Exodus 20, 22 through chapter 23, it's called the Book of the Covenant. That's right, the Book of the Covenant, not the Book of Law. Think of it like this. See, God rescued his people from Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea on dry ground, and now they go to Mount Sinai to receive this covenant from God. Later in the book of Leviticus, God is going to give them a full set of laws, but these few short chapters in Exodus are like a condensed set of laws to get them started. It includes civil laws that give instructions on daily living, ceremonial laws for worship and Sabbath and festivals. Now, coming out of Egypt, God's people desperately needed a new way of living, so God provides it. Oh, and God's part of the covenant is that he will provide blessings for obedience and actually ends with the promise for the land of Canaan. So, Exodus 20, verse 22, through chapter 23 is called the book of the covenant. This is spoken directly to Moses, and he records it so that God's people can live to God's standards in the wilderness. So, there you go. A little bit about the book of the covenant, and that's enough today for our historical minute. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for the ability to come and to dig into your word. And Father, we find ourselves in the middle of Exodus, in the middle of the law section. And yet, my prayer tonight is that even in this section, Lord, we can find things that minister to our hearts, that give us direction as we, as we go through life, that gives reminders that you love us. And that's why you give us these laws, to give us reminders that you got us as we go through the difficulties of life, reminders to trust you with our life more and more and more so that we might experience more and more blessings. And then just a reminder that when we blow it, that we have a God that loves us and forgives us. Father, that's why we celebrate Christmas. That's why we celebrate Jesus. And that's why we're here tonight. And we pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. So we find ourselves in Exodus 22. We're going to pick up in verse 29 today. If you remember from last week, we're in the middle of a, a kind of a bunch of law sections. Mike talked about it a little bit. The civil laws, I, I would give you a, maybe a way to think about this. You're a loving mom and dad, and you're taking your family on a week-long camping trip in the middle of the desert. You've got a seven-year-old, a five-year-old, and a three-year-old, and you tell them certain things that need to happen in the desert for their survival. I'll give you those as the civil laws, right? It's not a democracy. Please do these things. Don't play with the snake. He's not your friend, right? All these different kinds of things, okay? And then there's another way of thinking it, and these are imperfect in some ways, but um, your kid's going off to college, and you know, as an extension of who you are, and in some ways is their actions, and they reflect on you because you're part of the, in my case, the Sheldon family, and, and what you're saying is you're giving them words of wisdom, and words of encouragement, and words to follow because it will protect them in their journey through college, and can we all agree you need protection in your journey through college? Amen. So, you need, you're giving them wisdom from your experience, the things that they should do, things that they should avoid, all those different things, and then you say, if you do this, I will continue to pay for your college, and I will send you a monthly stipend, and you can just study and have fun and be awesome. If you choose to disobey me, uh, you're not going to college anymore, right? Or you'll have to come up with your own funding and life can get a lot harder a lot quicker. And that gives you a picture of some of the rest of the laws that God gives. Now, I said last week that these are uh, the civil laws in particular, or those that God has fulfilled in particular, are, are those that um, you get a sense of God's will in certain matters. As he was setting up the nation of Israel, these are things that he thought were good ideas. But a lot of these other laws are really just extensions of the Ten Commandments. They're part of the moral law, especially in this section on social justice. And so as we go through some of them tonight, I'm just going to kind of finish up some of them. Um, 
Again, they're just extensions of what it means to love God with all your heart and your soul and all your mind. So we pick up in verse 28, which is where we left off. And it's kind of an, a countercultural thing for us today because he says something crazy. He says, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. Now, what do you think about that? I hear all the time people that are mad at God essentially cursing his name because he allowed something to happen in their life. He allowed them, in many cases, just to experience the consequences of their sin, but they're mad at God because their lives are difficult. I hear even more people cursing the leaders of our country. I've said this before, especially in my Wednesday morning Bible class, but every president for the last three has been the Antichrist, right? I mean, everyone, whether it be on an email chain or whether it be in the media or something, somebody's calling the current or future or past president, and I'm sure the future presidents as well, the Antichrist. Why? Ultimately because they disagree with them. Right? We, we, we live in a culture today where it's hard to disagree without vilifying the other person. Uh, we can do it in sports, you know, pretty much. We, I don't like that my Lions keep losing. I, I can honor the fact that other teams are winning. I, I don't call Packer fans names or anything, you know. I, I just, we can do it in sports. I think we can do it in a lot of areas, actually. But it seems when it comes to politics, which is rulers, right? Leaders of a country or of your business or of your church or whatever it might be, there's a lot of slinging things that are unhelpful about those leaders. Most of the time, can we be fair without fact? We just disagree, and so we get mad, and so we vilify. One of the things God just says here, and it's an extension of the fourth commandment, right, to honor your mom and dad. Is it okay to, to diss on mom and dad? Not, not according to God. Why is that unhelpful? Not only is it the basis of all government is the family, it teaches kids respect. It teaches kids to honor their parents. It teaches respect not then just for your parents, but for the police or for the firefighters or, or for the governor or for the president of your country. People that you've elected, by the way, not maybe not you personally, but the country elected or your state elected to serve you in some capacity for the betterment of your society. It's a crazy thing what we do today. And we, I was reading an article in that we're addicted to, to rage as a country. And we go from one rage to another rage and we're just addicted and the media kind of keeps us in that rage-filled spot so that everything we disagree with, we rage against. Anybody disagree with me so far? What does God call us to do for our leaders, for our mom and dad, for officials, for governors, for presidents? Pray for them. Honor them. Respect their service. You don't have to disagree with everything they do, right? But you should pray for them if you feel like they're going the wrong way. If mom and dad are making some bad decisions and you're the kid, what should you do? Pray for them. Pray that God gets involved. Pray that they make better decisions. Pray that they can work it out if it's an interpersonal conflict. Pray for your family because God, when he gets involved, can do incredible things. When you disagree with somebody that's a public official, what does God call us to do? To pray for them. Pray that, that God would become more present in the midst of their administration. To pray that, that God would be more of a basis for why they did one thing over another. To pray that your perspective, right, would be based on Scripture and not whatever else. To pray. Do you think our country needs prayer today? Absolutely it needs prayer today. But don't you think that's one of the missing things in so many of our prayer lives? 
Do you pray for our country? Do you pray for our state? Do you pray for the people that have been elected, especially the ones, man, if you're going to pray for something, pray for somebody that you disagree with, right? That they come back to your way of thinking or whatever it is, but, but pray for them. And you know what? If we don't start modeling that, how's our culture going to change? If the people in the church don't take that responsibility seriously and start praying for people that need our help, praying for a country that desperately needs our care, then who are we thinking is going to change things as we walk forward in this culture of ours? God gives us a wisdom here. He says, don't revile God nor curse the ruler of your people because in general, right, God is, well, not in general, God is always looking out for our good. And in general, the people that God has placed in leadership, by the way, he's involved in that process as well either for our blessing or for our cursing? Do we get that? If we're a disobedient people, what kind of leader are we going to tend to get? We're going to tend to get one that's going to give us an experience of consequence. If we're people that are obedient to the Lord, what are we going to tend to get? A leader that's going to tend to be blessing to us. Do we get that? Where's our culture walking right now? Away from God. So is it any wonder that our media and, and our government is so dysfunctional and that all we do is we yell at each other there's some good ideas out there, but it's hard for anybody to embrace them. And so I, just to call it to you, what God's calling to you is to recognize that they're there for our benefit and that they need our prayers. And that's what he says in the New Testament too. He says, pray for your leaders, Paul's words. Next one, verse 29 says, you shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your, pres- of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother, and then on the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore you shall not eat. Oh, okay, let me stop it in that first one. So God in this first part is he's just saying, remember when I took you out of Egypt. I claimed you as my own. And one of the ways that you're going to honor me for the rest of eternity, right, is you're going to give me your first fruits, whether it be of your children or of your, pro- of your produce or of your, sh- of your flock, you're going to give me your first fruits. And if it's your son, I'll let you redeem him, right? I mean, you know, those kind of things. And if it's an unclean animal, I'll let you redeem him or kill him or whatever. But the reality is, I want you to sacrifice, give unto me the first of all those things. It's the way that you honor me. It's the basis for the tithe, right, that he talks about. I want you to put me first in the area of money, in the area of materialism. I want to be first in every area of your life. And can we just acknowledge that money is one of the biggest gods in our culture today? Why, why do I say that? Because when you think about security and retirement, do you think about God or do you think about money? When I talk about security in healthcare or your medical situation, do you think about God or do you think about how much healthcare you have or how much money do you have in the bank? When you think about uh, almost anything in life, do you feel it right to God or do you think I've got this covered? How about safety in your neighborhood? Do you look to your home or do you look to God? Do you look to neighborhood or do you look to God? Materialism, we live in a very materialistic culture. It's, 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 it's just what we grew up with. It's the lot that we're dealt. But God says, I want to be first in every area of your life. I want to be first, guys. I want you to love me most. And one of the ways, just one of the ways that we show that is when we tithe our income to him. And we say, here's our first portion, just like they did back in the day. We want you to be first. Use this for the glory of your kingdom in, in, in our world today. And so that's one of the things he calls them to. He goes on in verse 31. He says, You shall be consecrated to me, therefore you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. Kind of a, a weird request there for sure. But it's, uh, many believe, a, a prohibition against eating blood or drinking blood. 
And I, I know that's one of the more random laws that God has, but it's been a consistent law all the way back from Genesis, where Abel or uh, yeah, Abel's blood is crying out from the ground, right? It's been a, a prohibition all the way from that very beginning time, all the way through the early Israel journeys, all the way into the New Testament. In fact, when they were having this big debate on circumcision and what do you absolutely have to do to be a Christian, one of the things that they highlighted was, and don't drink blood. Because in it has the lifeblood of an animal or of a person. And, I, and we don't, he didn't go into why that's such a big deal. He just says, don't do it. For your own sake, for my glory, don't do it. And so that's one of the things that, that will continue to come up as you go through. And, and we don't get it because, I don't know, it's just not our reference point. But the reality is God feels very strongly about this. He moves on in verse 23. It says, you shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a, a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with uh, the many to do evil. You shall not bear false witness in a lawsuit, uh, siding with the enemy so as to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. Again, one of the, the big themes that will come up all the way through these first five books of the Bible, and especially when it comes to law and justice, is the demand for evidence. Unless you have two or three witnesses, do not bring a charge forward. It's a big deal, and he does it to protect the innocent. And, and I know there's lots of times that you just want justice, and you can't prove it, and you just want justice, but that demand for evidence keeps everybody safe. If you don't demand evidence, any of us could be accused of anything at any time. And if evidence doesn't matter, it's easy to lead to anarchy. Okay, and so I'll give you some examples of that. When I was in college, one of my heroes was O.J. Simpson. I mean, if you can remember back that, that far, it was back in the early 90s, right? Right before some things went south. Uh, I, I had a chance to serve him at the USC football games. He was on NFL Today. He was larger than life. He was super friendly. I got to know the whole family, even some of the ones that didn't make it. I got to know them all, and it was amazing. And then... Can you imagine my horror when I found out that he was being accused of murder, right? I mean, and the, everybody in the nation was watching his van. I mean, I'm sure he was going shopping or something and just didn't know what was going on. And, and, and the reality is everybody had already judged him. They convicted him that he was guilty. How, why would he run if he wasn't guilty? All these different things. And we had judged him as guilty. And yet, after the law kind of did everything, after he went through the court system, was it, what was he pronounced? Innocent, not guilty. Now, the civil courts pronounced him guilty, and he probably was, but they actually found some new evidence. It, they think he might have moved the bodies over 100 yards and 13 carries. <laughs> He's a running back. <laughs> it's one of my favorite jokes. It's horrible. I don't know. Okay, all right. But the problem with that whole thing is not of his innocence or guilt, right? But the problem was, as a culture, we judged him guilty without any evidence. Without any evidence. Uh, one of the things that's going on at USC right now is uh, there was a big outcry because we stink this season for the coach to be fired. And there was a huge outcry. We want his head. We want his head. And we wanted his head because of the results on the field weren't there. But we didn't have any of the inner workings of the team. And when the team decided to keep the coach, there was this huge outcry. Again, we love as a culture to judge people from afar without evidence. We've gotten into a huge problem with a whole spectrum of different things, whether it be politics or sports or what have you, and we love to judge from afar without any evidence. Again, and, and I just say because all the way through these first five books, there's a demand for evidence. It's to protect the innocent. 
And does that mean, just like in the back time, or back then as it is today, that some people may get off without being convicted? Sure it does. Do they really get off or does God still see? God still sees. And and this just brings us a lesson in life. How many of you guys have ever been wronged? Just me? Okay, a few more? Okay. And, And how many of you guys have been wronged in a way that you haven't seen vindication or justice? It's just part of life, right? Life is hard. It's so often unfair. And one of the the things that we have to learn to do as we go through life is to get past some of that injustice if we can't prove it. If we can prove it, you go to court or you you, you turn them over to HR or whatever the deal is. But, But the reality is if you don't have evidence, you have to learn to just figure out a way to move past. And here's the harder part, to forgive. And why is forgiveness such a big deal? It's it's a big deal not just because God calls us to do it, not just because it's the the bridge we have to cross to get to heaven, right? But we do it for ourselves too. I mean, the heaven part's for us too, but we do it so that we're not continually rehearsing the past and punishing ourselves or, or reliving the horror of our past, but that we can be freed from that bondage and live a life that's renewed and reborn, a new beginning, it's one of the hardest things that people that we have to learn to do in life is to forgive those injustices. And, and here's the deal, to give them to God. Knowing that he sees, knowing that vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And if you really want to be nasty to somebody, love on them after they wrong you. Heap and burning coals on their head is what God says, right? But in doing that, you're freeing yourself. You're freeing your heart you're freeing the, all those painful memories. They're still there, but they don't haunt you. They don't dictate to you. They don't hold you in bondage anymore. Plus, it's what God calls us to do, and it's super hard, but God calls us to do it, and he says you will be free if you can get there. We need, as a culture, to demand evidence. We need, as a Christian culture, to learn to forgive and move forward. And if, again, if it doesn't start with us in our country, where's it going to begin? I think a lot of us are hoping somebody else starts it. But if it doesn't happen with the people that love God in our country, where does this process begin? If you meet your enemy's ox and his donkey are going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it and shall rescue it with him. Okay, this is an expansion on the fifth commandment. You, not, you shall not commit murder, right? It's not just not hating somebody. It's not, just, it's not just not killing somebody. It's actually, if you look at Luther's stuff, it's actually caring for them as well. Looking out for their benefit. He's not talking about a buddy of yours. He's talking about an enemy. Somebody that's looking for your harm. To not just not hate him. To not just not go after him. But also to care for his stuff as well. To care for his well-being. God says in the New Testament, right, that you heap burning coals upon their head if you do such things. But the reality is you also show them Jesus' love. And here's the greater thing, and this is hard for some people as well. Our hope in showing them Jesus' greater love is that they come to Jesus, repent, and be with us forever in paradise. I was talking with somebody and said, well, that's not fair. They can do that, and then they get to go to heaven. I said, I don't know if they get off scot-free. When you come to Jesus, you become very aware of the sin that you've done to others in your life, and there's almost a call to try to make it better if you can, because you see how badly you've wronged people. 
And then if you can't, there's just this guilt that kind of weighs with you until you embrace what Christ has done. But greater is the love that says, man, now he's in heaven. His life has been reformed. He's not gonna hurt anybody else. He's figured it out. Praise be to Jesus. Life is hard, but God is good. And sometimes we just gotta trust his wisdom and his grace and kind of get over some of our stuff. You shall not pervert the justice due to, your, to the poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And so don't, be a, don't, be a, don't give false testimony. God will not acquit right, the wicked. Uh, don't be part of taking a bribe. God will not acquit the wicked. Uh, don't give partiality to somebody in a case. Just let it be what's right and what's wrong. God will not acquit the wicked. In other words, he will hold you accountable to the evil that you do. Do we have a culture today that likes to take a lot of factors besides right and wrong into account? God says, let it be about what's right and what's wrong. I was talking to my daughter, I shared this earlier today, but I was talking to my daughter on Friday. We were going from school to, to swim, and one of them was dealing with some insecurity, and, and I was just talking about, well, what do you worry about when you're insecure? And they say, well, we worry about what other people are thinking about us. And I says, is it easy to manipulate you if you're worried about what other people are thinking? Well, yeah, because you're trying to do stuff that makes them happy. And then I said, what does God think? And said, Dad, you always bring God into stuff, right? But I said, what does God think about stuff? Well, he would say to just care about what he thinks. And he would say, just care about what's right and what's wrong. And trust him with the rest. Love my kids because they're so smart, you know? But the reality is, we live in a culture that just needs to get away from all that other stuff of trying to please people, of trying to go with the crowd. You know, mob mentality doesn't often seek justice, right? And we gotta start doing what's right and avoid doing what's wrong. We gotta start caring what God thinks to free us from the bondage of doing what everybody else thinks. It's a big deal. You shall not oppress the sojourner. You shall know the heart of the sojourner for you shall, were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Again, he's gonna hit this and then he's gonna hit it one more time. And before he goes on, but the reality is God calls us to care about those that are sojourning in our land. I think that's a big topic today, you know, the immigration stuff. But God calls us not to objectify them, but to care for them. It doesn't mean, again, I talked about this last week, to have to take care of everything because there's a cost associated. But the reality is we need to start caring about them and not objectify them as if they're not real people, as if God didn't create them. And I think it's an important part as we have this discussion, and it's a... It's not a discussion our country's having anytime soon, I guess, in a real way, but the reality is we need to figure out what we want to do with those that want to come to our country. People only want to get in someplace that's pretty awesome, right? So we got to figure out what we want to do with the people that want to come here. And I think do so in a real way. Again, if it doesn't start with us, where does it start? In verse 10, it says, For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its field, but in the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard, with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and that the son of your servant, woman, and alien may be refreshed. So God talks about the Sabbath year, and he also talks about the Sabbath day here. Both were instrumental. Um, the Sabbath year was like every, you work six years, on the seventh one, you take it off, right? And you do that with your land, and you just trust. And what God says, I'll give you three times what you would normally get on that sixth year so that you don't have to gather the seventh year. So that's enough for that year. It's enough for the next year where it's lying fallow. And then it's enough for the next year as you get the seed planted and start up again. I'm going to give you three years where trust me, just like the manna. 
Well, as idolatry kind of worked its way back into Israel, they stopped celebrating the Sabbath year. They just stopped doing it. And if you go all the way through Jeremiah, when they were finally exiled into Babylon, they had to pay 70 of these Sabbath years that they had blown off. God was saying, you're not coming back until all the Sabbath years are done. And they had blown off 70 in a row. So God said, okay, you're going to stay there for 70 years. Just kind of a, a, little, back, or a little history into that, that, that exile time. And then he talks about the Sabbath. And we talked about this already when we went through the Ten Commandments. So let's all kind of pass on it today. In verse 13, he picks up and says, Pay attention to all that I have said to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. I think that's a big thing that you're going to hear over and over. What does God hate more than anything? Idolatry. Something else that's before him. Um, it's hard for us to, I think, to totally grasp hold of that in our country today because we live in a, a, a land that allows freedom of, of religion. And so anybody who wants to worship whatever can do that freely in our country. And I think that's a wonderful thing. It's allowed Christian uh, truth to be proclaimed in almost every street corner that you can imagine in America. Um, and it's an awesome thing. But if you have a holy nation, God just says, well, you're free to worship me and me alone. And you're not free to worship all these other gods for they're against me and they're not real. And you're putting something before me and I'm a jealous God and I hate that. You worship me alone. I'm the only way that gets you to heaven because I'm going to send my son, the Messiah, that you're looking forward to. I made the promise back in Genesis. I'm the only one that's going to bless you or curse you depending on how you follow me. Please only worship me. Now, it seems kind of confining, but it, it makes all the sense in the world if you want a holy nation, a nation unto you, a nation that you keep safe because they're going to follow you wholeheartedly. And it gives you a little bit of a perspective into some of the Muslim nations today. Because what I was just reading another report that Christians are going extinct in the Middle East right now because country after country after country as they get to a certain percentage of, of Muslims are, are going after the Christians and either having a move or they're killing them and there's just massive persecution going on right now. Um, but in those countries, they say you can worship Allah and Allah alone. I think that's hard for us to acknowledge that there's actually countries that are still doing a religious kind of polity, right, in their country, a religious kind of system. But they're encouraging the very same things that God encouraged, except he was saying, follow me. So it gives us an understanding of that. And, and it's, okay, so if you believe that Allah is God and you want him alone to be worshipped, makes all the sense in the world then, doesn't it? Sad things are just following a lie. And, that, and that's, the, that's the confounding thing and that's the frustrating thing. But it gives you a perspective of why they do what they do when you read through Scripture. God says, I need you to follow me. Again, when he, when he asks us to do the law, what is he doing? He's looking out for us, right? He's saying, I will bless you if you follow me. It is the best way forward if you follow me. And it shows me that you love me if you follow me. As we experience life, I think you can just step back and see the truthfulness over and over and over again, especially by looking at the times that you did not follow him and experience not the blessing, but the consequence. 
Three times a year in a year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread as I commanded you. You shall eat the unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib. For it is, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest, the first fruits for your labor uh, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year. And when you gather in the field the fruit of your labor, and three times in the year you shall you shall year shall all your males appear before the Lord your God. So God was saying this in that He's saying all of Israel, you need to come before me three times a year. Three times a year, or you are kicked out of Israel and are not welcome to return. Three times a year, all your males. Now, at new member class, we say, well, if we, you know, we do have a system where you, know, you can eventually not be a member here. And we say, if you don't show up for 10 months straight, then we're going to say, you know, I think maybe somebody else is ministering to you or, or, or we're just saying, you know, you're kind of sinning against the word and sacrament, right? You're, you're, not, you're not seeking the Lord, and, and we've tried to reach out to you. We've, we've called you. We've, we've sent letters to you, and, and nothing seemed to change that. And so we're just going to part ways right now because that's what God calls us to do at a certain point, to turn you over back to Satan so that through that experience, you come back and you seek the Lord, right? And so there's that, that whole part of it. And when I say 10 months, most of the people in new membership class go, well, yeah, who doesn't come for 10 months, you know? If you've actually ever been asked to leave a church because you didn't showed up for 10 months, sometimes people get mad. They get mad because we're, how dare you kick us out of a church that we haven't been at for 10 months? Okay, think about that and then think three times a year. Then think 10 months, which is harder? Three times a year. Luther says if you don't come once a quarter, you should be kicked out of the church and turned over to Satan until you recognize what you're doing and come back to the Lord. He says you're despising the word of God and you're despising the sacrament of the altar or God's body and blood. When we avoid worship, we're saying, well, in some ways, we got better things to do. I'd rather sleep, I'd rather go to a, the lake, I'd rather do this. And, and God says I want to be What? first. When we don't come, we're saying we can remember by ourselves. The problem is that we're great forgetters, and we don't. I don't know anybody that's grown closer to the Lord by stopping going to church. We need continually to be reminded that we're forgiven. We need to continually be reminded that God's got us. We need to continually be reminded that there's a heaven. We need to be continually reminded that there's strength in him. We need that continually because we forget all the time. And then something bad happens to us and we blame God, but it's not his fault. We need to be in his word. And we have a culture right now that's walking away from him in mass. I was reading an article again today. I guess I read a lot now. But 200 to 300 churches a week are closing. 200, 300 churches a week, that's insane. But it's not just churches. People have stopped going a lot of places today. Sports venues are down across the country. Uh, shopping malls are almost half what they were just a few years ago. Uh, uh, outdoor activities are seeing a decline in numbers. People just aren't going out as much anymore, and there's just more staying at home doing what? Looking at media. They're not spending time with friends. Bars, attend that's not a thing we encourage, but the reality, that attendance is way down as well. I mean, across the board, just an interesting time. But God says, as a way of keeping me first, 
to the nation of Israel who had to travel a long way and by foot, most cases, at least three times a year. That's my call to you. And I'd share that with you as how you could stay a member of St. Mark, right? Three times a year would be great. That's like, we have people in Minnesota coming that much, right? I mean, we have people, if it's just three times a year and they can lump them together, we have people in Germany that could be members of our church. I mean, it's crazy. It's not a high bar. Okay. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. And that was, again, hearkening back to the, the Exodus uh, when they ate unleavened bread, right? When they didn't leave anything for the next day. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord. Again, another call to tithing. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. No idea other than that it was a practice and I guess God didn't like it. Um, Verse 20, behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to a place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. So I want to give you a little bit of a picture. Moses is kind of transitioning from this book of the covenant, and he's transitioning to what's happening again. And and so they're at this mountain, and he says, hey, I'm going to send you this angel with you. Remember that big pillar, fire and cloud? Somehow he's in the cloud. He's part of the cloud. It's also a manifestation, many commentators believe, of Christ. How he talked to them, I'm not sure, unless that was what Moses did in the tent of meeting, and and that's where he got direction or or counsel. I'm not sure. There's a lot of stuff that commentators are, are a little bit unsure with this, but the reality is that an angel goes with them, talks to them. They're supposed to pay careful attention to them. So, so do you get that everywhere they're going to go, because you're going to, well, we're, we're going to go to Luke in a little bit, which will be a nice reprieve, but, but when we go back to Leviticus and Numbers and all those different things, you're going to see over and over and over them rebelling against God. Actually, you're going to see that just a little bit more in Exodus with the golden calf. There's an angel of God, a pillar of fire. They've just been through everything. And yet, for whatever reason, those things grow dull, at least an impression and they turn inward, and they rebel against God. So he says, don't rebel against him, but he says, if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. Again, God says, you follow me, it's the best way forward. Can we understand that objectively? Absolutely. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. So God's going to become more explicit on this, but he says, I'm going to give you this promised land, and as you go in, I want you to eradicate idolatry. And the people there either need to go away or you need to eradicate them. It seems super harsh, but what is he doing? He's removing the evil from that country. And we talked about this when we were talking about Genesis. Now, the cup of the Canaanites was overflowing with sin. That's the reason they had to go 400 and some years to Egypt, right? Because their cup wasn't full yet. It is now full. From God's perspective, he is punishing this country because of their sin. He is punishing the people because they've rebelled against them, because they've shown hatred toward him, because they've left him. He is punishing them and giving their land completely to Israel. So there's justice in this. When you get into the interpersonal, it's hard. But the reality is, eradicate the evil. Get rid of the people. Make them go away. 
or kill them. That's what he's saying here. It'll get more explicit as it goes forward. You shall serve the Lord your God and he will bless your bread and your water and I will take sicknesses away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. He's given us a lot of blessings here. Is it better to follow the Lord? So far, yes, yep. I will send my terror before you and I will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you and I will send hornets before you which shall drive out the Hivites and the Canaanites and the Hivites from before you. I will not, so he's giving us all these things. Follow me and essentially the world is yours or at least Canaan is yours and I'm gonna take care of you and I'm gonna provide for you and you're not gonna miscarry and you're gonna have all this blessing and you're just gonna go, God is good. Objectively, can you just say, if we follow the Lord, it's going to go better. Now, I'm going to give you, I gave you a couple of illustrations at the beginning. Now you're a parent, loving parent, and your daughter, your son is getting married. And you want to give them some helpful advice because you've been married for whatever years and you just want their marriage to succeed. And you know sometimes your son or daughter's just an idiot, right? So you want to give them wisdom, okay? And you'd like to make their first year easier than yours, you know, and so you're trying to do this. Is that advice always well received? Is that advice always heard? Okay. Now you get the loving father, the loving God, who's rescued him out of Egypt, who wants to give him this new land, He's, he's basically saying, follow me or else, but he's saying, I've got your best interest at heart. But they still struggle. I will not drive them out all before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. In other words, if, you, if I just wiped them all at once, then the animals become an issue, and I don't want that to happen. Also, I want to use them to test you. I'll talk about that further as we go in. Little by little, I will drive them out before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the, to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your land and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land lest, you make, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. It's an interesting thing, he says here. If you think about being the nation of Israel and going into this country, and you're not warriors. I mean, you're just getting into it. You're, you're seeing God bless some of your battles. You're starting to figure out war because, you know, you've been slaves for forever. But you're not hardened like warriors that just hate people. And now you're going into a culture and they're not all fighting against you, but you're called to... Wipe them out. What if they surrender to you? You feel good about putting them all down? Our compassion just raises, right? If we saw them the way God saw them, sees them, and that they, we, he, we would see them as enemies that are in hatred toward God, and their actions and their behavior will lead us astray and divide us from God, separate us from God, so that we incur punishment, that they're a danger actually to us, and we need to eradicate the evil for our own sakes, then it would be easy. But we just see them as people or kids or wives and so we don't kill them. What if we just make them slaves? That would be cool, except for their ideology still continues. And then a lot of those slaves we marry and so that ideology starts getting creeping in more and more. And absolutely, it gets them to a point where they become a snare and ultimately destroys both Israel and Judah. All the way through scripture, God encourages his people to be equally yoked. 
And it's hard today. My girls go to a high school, and it's hard for them to even name a few Christians in the whole high school. Maybe they all send them to charter school now. I don't know. But, but the reality is it's just a different society today. It's not as plenteous, right, as it used to be. And so it requires more patience, and it requires more selection, and it requires a lot of stuff. But why is that important? Because if our inner circle isn't people that are drawing us to God, especially in hard times, then we become weak. And if there's somebody else pulling us away from God in that inner circle, then every hard thing becomes a war between what God says and what this person says. And it can divide our heart and ultimately can break us. One of the surefire ways to sacrifice your eternity is to marry a non-believer as a result of this. Doesn't mean that there's not cases or, uh, that, that works the other way, and praise be to God for that. But all the way from now, all the way through, as Paul talks about it in the New Testament, he calls us to be equally yoked. And I can give you example after example after example of people that have pursued the other way and experienced some of the difficulty of that. And experience now their kids not knowing the Lord the way that they could or at all. Again, they give you, yeah, going on, but there's studies, all sorts of things. But anyway, so I'm going to encourage that. We can get into it more later if you, if you want to talk about that. I could talk about it all day because it's such a big issue. Um, but one of the things that God calls us to do is our inner circle, or in this case, the land of Canaan, you need to remove the evil from that place. You're not going to remove yourself from the world, but from that inner circle, in this case, the nation of Israel, you need to remove that cancer, that evil, and have people around you that strengthen you toward God and not tear you asunder. Okay, it's enough for today. Uh, we'll pick up next week. Um, and we're probably going to summarize, if it's okay with you, a little bit of the tabernacle discussion. Is because my mind might blow up if we don't. So we're going to do that. Um, let me pray. God, we love you so much. And my prayer tonight again is just that in the middle of Exodus, as it's talking about laws and, and all sorts of things like that, that you would give us a reminder of your love for us. And we can see it from a parent's perspective, loving on our kids and wanting to help them out and wanting them to avoid pain in life. And that's what you do again and again and again in the section of laws. You plead almost with your people saying, follow me and I will protect you. Follow me and you will find blessing. And then we can almost feel God's heart break as time and time again they go a different way. Father, give us a compassion that God has for us, for the other people in our life. Let us continue to love them even when it's hard. Let us continue to pray for them like leaders and different things even when it's hard. Let us continue to, to be the people that you've called us to be. And as we approach Christmas especially, let us rejoice in the forgiveness that you give for all the times we've blown it. We love you so much, God. Thank you for Jesus. And we pray this in his name and all God's people say, amen.